0: Thank you for this, another opportunity we have to draw near together in faith. And we thank you that we can study these these passages, these chapters together. We consider this all-important part of the New Testament, uh, seeing uh, your, your heart for the lost expressed in the Great Commission and the work through the church. And we ask you to bless our hearts and our time together as we consider this, the second missionary journey tonight, in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So we remember uh, last week uh, we we finished the Jerusalem Council, which is chapter fifteen. Uh, some consider that to be perhaps the most important chapter in in the Book of Acts because it's it's a chapter that really defines what is the gospel for a Jew, for a Gentile, or a Jew. Um, what what do they have to be t- do to be saved. So that was clearly answered. That uh, Peter and James got up in that council, declared that it's by grace that we were saved. It's by grace that they're saved. They give them the letters of authority. They also send Silas uh, um, and uh, uh, as along as a spokesman to verify the message. Um, and then we we join at the end of chapter fifteen. It says after some days. Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit our brethren in every city. And you remember how, unfortunately, Barnabas and Paul had a little bit of a disagreement because Barnabas wanted to bring his nephew, John Mark, uh, who had left them on the first missionary journey, if you remember. And, and the Apostle Paul said, no way, he's not coming. There was quite a contention, and in the end they split. So Barnabas takes John Mark to Cyprus, which was his homeland, his home, uh, place where he grew up, um, but the commentary. First, we see the commendation from the sending church. Also, the commentary, inspired by the Holy Spirit, follows. Uh, follows Paul particularly. So, we 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 recognise that uh, we recognise that. So, uh, let's. Uh, are we on here? Yeah. So, we're in the Book of Acts. So, we remember that was our first missionary journey. Uh, they return. Um, they visit these various places in, in the region of Galatia or in Asia Minor. Uh, Paul references this in the book of Timothy where he refers to his persecution, his afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, persecutions which he endured for the gospel's sake and the Lord brought him out of them. So this is the region he was, um, they were in, Asia Minor, around 45 to 47. Again, you'll read different dates on these trips, and that's closely followed by the uh, Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, if we were to put a date on that, around 51 AD. Those two questions, important questions, were answered. The theological question of salvation, and then the practical question of uh, being sensitive, not being a stumbling block in reaching the Jews uh, that's given to the to the uh, Gentile Christians. And now we start with the second journey, shortly after the Jerusalem Council, um, and that's where we, we just introduced that by saying that Paul now chooses Silas. Now remember, uh, Silas was one of the two representatives sent back after the Jerusalem Council, and Silas was the one who says, I'm going to stay. So he Hung around in Antioch, and when when Paul says, "Okay, Barnabas isn't coming," uh, Silas, and Silas is there and and ready to go. So uh, that's in chapter forty of verse of chapter. Uh, sorry, verse forty of chapter fifteen, and forty one says, "And he went through Syria and Cilicia." Got back to that map. Where is it? Uh, I got a better one than that. Hold on. Yeah, so here he went through Syria and Cilicia. This is Paul and Silas now. This is starting the second missionary journey. And his plan is to revisit the the villages and the towns that they went to on the first missionary journey. And as you can see, they actually end up going a lot further. And this is when they actually come to Europe. So when you think about, when we turn to the epistles and we read the letters of Paul, and we read something like, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, we ask the question, where did this church come from? Um, And of course, we know that the book of Acts bridges the gap between the Gospels, and particularly we think of the Great Commission, Jesus sending his disciples, and the letters or the epistles. If it wasn't for the book of Acts, we would turn to the book of Philippians and we would say, Philippi? Where did that come from? How did that church get there? Who's, who's Timothy and Silas or the book of Romans? How did we get to Rome? Who's, you know, who's Barnabas and this kind of thing? It wouldn't be clear without the book of Acts. So when we consider this, uh, losing my place here. Uh, where did the church come from, we can turn to the book of Acts, particularly with the book of Philippi. This was the first European city. This was on the second missionary journey, and we read about that in Acts 16, which is the chapter we're just about to start uh, now. So we can see in verse 1, he came to Derby and Lystra. I'll try and pull that map up again. So here they are, Paul and Silas. They come to Derby and Lystra. Remember, so a few years have passed, but those disciples and converts they met on the first missionary journey would have been rejoicing to see them. They would have had so many questions, and the churches would have been growing. It would have been a wonderfully uh, exciting time. And uh, behold, there's a certain disciple was there named Timothy. And of course, we know this name because there's two pastoral epistles written later at the end of our New Testament. Paul to Timothy, and this is young Timothy. He obviously became a believer on the first missionary journey. And now Paul goes back. He sees this young disciple, Timothy, and he hears the reports about him. Verse 2 was well spoken of by the brethren at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted to have him to go with him. So again, we see the principle there. Paul chose Silas and now he chooses Timothy also. This is the next team member. And then we read something that's quite shocking at Face value, it says he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And we say, wait a minute. He, he was circumcised. Why, why, why did he do that? We just come from the Jerusalem council where it was clarified that you did not have to be circumcised. You you do not have to keep the law to be saved. And yet Paul on this missionary journey takes Timothy and, and has him to be circumcised. And the, the key phrase there is because of the Jews in that region, they knew that his father was a Greek. So, um, is clarified when we understand it certainly wasn't a qualification for salvation, but it was something that Timothy uh, with a heart to want to be sensitive to the Jews, because all the Jews knew that his father was Greek, although his mother was Jewish, and he wanted to as best he can, identify and have an open door of ministry to the Jews. So Paul refused that Titus would get circumcised, remember, when he went to Jerusalem. But here, Timothy uh, wanted to have a ministry to the Jews, so, so with, with Paul, that's, that's how, what they, how they did that. We see this principle in 1 Corinthians 9.22, uh, becoming all things to all men. Uh, Timothy was certainly under no obligation um, however, he, he chose to do it um, to, in his heart and ministry towards the Jews. Verse 4, And as they went through the cities, and again, they're going through this region here, uh, the region of Galatia. As they went through the cities, they delivered the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's wonderful, isn't it? When we go through the word like this, that makes a bit of sense to us now. We know what those decrees are. They're the letters from the Jerusalem council. And they're telling the churches what was what was clarified and agreed upon at the council. And, um, and the response is wonderful. Look, verse five, the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in their number daily. Now, this is a key part. So we see... Uh, Paul and Silas starting out. Here they pick up Timothy. So there's three of them on the team here. They revisit these churches and look at verse 6. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And Asia, this is Asia Minor, which is uh, this region here. This is Asia Minor. Think of the places that are here. Think of these places. We've got Ephesus, Miletus, Thyatira, Pergamum, Sardis, Colossae. These are key churches. There will be churches there later, but not now. It's not God's timing for that now. So we read this curious verse that perhaps they were planning to go that way, but it says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And I love how that's quite understated. It doesn't really tell us any more than that doesn't tell us how the Holy Spirit did that, whether it was conviction in their heart or circumstances. We don't know the details, but we know that God, the Holy Spirit, um, can lead and guide in, in a number, number of different ways. We pray, we trust we're available to Him, and we rest in the leading of the Holy Spirit. So, Asia, th- this region will, will come later. For now, they're, they're not allowed to go west. And then look at verse seven. And after they had come to Mysia so actually that's the M for Mysia up there, do I have that here? Yeah, after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, which is here, oh, Bithynia, which is here. So they came here, and they were going to go this way, but again we read, "But the Spirit did not permit them. So they couldn't go west to Asia Minor. they couldn't go northeast. So they basically had to go straight on. And they end up coming to Troas, which is right here on the coast. This is verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. So we get the idea. We're not sure what God is doing at this point. They're praying. They're being led by God with peace and conviction and perhaps circumstances. And they, they can't go this way. They can't go that way. So they keep going. They end up in Troas. Maybe there's a question mark in the heart. Where do we go from here? And it's about to be made clear in the vision, famously known as the Macedonian vision in verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So in the vision he sees a man, and of course it's a man that represents the heart and the needs of the people in this region, in Greece and in Europe and beyond. Um, And of course, we're going to see various people in this chapter or in the following chapters that need help. And what is the help? It's it's the gospel. They need to hear the gospel so that they can uh, be saved ultimately. And after he had seen the vision, verse 10, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. So we've spanned back on the map here. So we've stepped right back. You can see the beginning from Antioch through Galatia. We come to Troas and they get the Macedonian vision here. And they have a vision of a man in Macedonia who says, come over uh, and help us. And um, you'll notice in verse there's, you'll, you may notice something. It says, um, in verse 8, it says, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. But in verse 10, it says, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. What's changed there? Who's writing? Who's the author of the book of Acts? Luke. So Luke is writing and in verse 8 he says they went to Troas and in verse 10 he says we decided to go to Macedonia. So that tells us all of a sudden Luke has joined the team. Luke very unassumingly, he doesn't write in the verse and then I arrived and there was a wonderful missionary welcome. No, he just slips in, the the they turns to we. So now we have four of them on the team. The missionary doctor... Historian uh, uh, Luke is on the team. And what's their, uh, what does it say here? Concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And I love this principle. It was Paul who got the vision, but Luke writes, when he got the vision, we endeavored to go with the heart behind the visionary with faith in God for his work and his time and his purpose, we endeavored to go, concluding that he had called us to preach the gospel. Oh, it's a wonderful team, team spirit expressed there. So what they do in verse 11, they sail from Troas. Um, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. If you look on your map here from Troas... There's Neapolis, and we can see Philippi just inland somewhat uh, from the coast there. And this is verse 12. And from there to Philippi, and this is a name very familiar to us as Christians. We love that wonderful letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. And this is where the church begins from this missionary journey. We're just about to do discipleship explored. And of course, the letter of Philippians, those four chapters, is the backdrop for that course. It's, it's, It's Paul's most personal intimate letter to any of the churches he had an incredible relationship with this church and all through his rest of his life this church had a special place in his heart and he had a special place in their heart Um, they would support him they sent support to him uh, on several different occasions when he was in need uh, both in Thessalonica and in Rome Um, and he he had such a connection to this church in Philippi tells us they're the the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony, and we were staying in that city for some days. So notice it says a colony. This was a Roman colony. It's like a piece of Roman soil that was there, mainly Roman citizens. Uh, Not so many Jews, mainly Gentiles. And um, you can go there and visit the ruins, of course, uh, there today. If you look at verse 13... So remember Paul's strategy, when he would come to a city, what's one of the first things that they would do? They would go to the synagogue. But we 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 don't read that here in verse 13. It says, and on the Sabbath day, the Sabbath, when you go to the synagogue, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Didn't go to the synagogue because there wasn't one in Philippi. It was a Roman colony. There wasn't enough Jews, Jewish men, to start synagogues. So Paul and the team get there. It's the first time that they've been there as a team together. They've got no contacts, no map, no email addresses, no, no churches to go. There isn't any churches. What do they do? Hmm, I wonder where there might be spiritually-minded people, maybe some Gentile seekers. Well, normally we go to the synagogue, but where else could we go? And they discover that down by the river, prayer was customarily made on the Sabbath. So people went down to the river and they prayed by the riverside. And what did they do? They, we sat down and we spoke to the women uh, we met there. So it says they spoke to all the women. But we see one certain woman who is named Lydia, who responds beautifully in verse 14. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. Now, the irony of that is Thyatira is a city on the coast in um, Asia Minor, where he was forbidden to go. So it's interesting. He's called to Macedonia. They come to Philippi, and the first person that becomes a believer is from Thyatira. But neither here nor there. But anyway... And she worshipped God, and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken of by Paul. So, uh, it's a wonderful thing. We pray that we could meet Lydia's. We pray that we would meet people that are prepared by God, and, and there's an opening of the heart. She is attentive to the words of Paul, and in those moments she puts her faith in the words that he is sharing, which of course is the gospel, um, it says, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. In verse 15, and when she and her household were baptized, and when you read that, you're like, hold on a minute. Is there a couple of verses missing? What happened? It just says she heard the things spoken of by Paul. The next thing, our whole family's being baptized. What, what happened there? And of course, it skips quite a bit, but we... Um, we don't read about the message he shared, about the response, about them praying. We don't hear about the Holy Spirit. We don't hear about her household hearing and them getting saved. Uh, it just skips to them all being baptized. So we can fill in the blanks, of course, because that's what happened. And she begged us or pleaded with us, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. What a beautiful verse that is. Or oh, she pleaded with them listen, haven't I responded? Oh, if, you, if you would judge me faithful in my heart, could you honor me by grace? Could you please stay? Um, and of course, she'd responded. She brought them to the house. The householder all responded, all got baptized, probably went down to that river again. And they're just about to leave. And she begs them to stay. And I love these words. So she persuaded us. And again, these are wonderfully phrased verses that just leave it to our imagination. We wish there could be more said about that, but that pers- she's persuading and they're persuaded. And of course, uh, Lydia's house becomes the first house church in Philippi. When you get to the end of the chapter, when Paul's leaving Philippi, it says just before he left, he went to Lydia's house and greeted the brethren. So it becomes a house church. It's exciting. Now, the next character introduced in verse 16. Now, it happened as we went to prayer, and that's curious. We would imagine it means that now they go back down to the river to pray. It doesn't say that, but it says, As we went to prayer, they're walking through Philippi again, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. These masters uh, were exploiting this uh, supernatural uh, gift that she had. Uh, She was a young girl, perhaps a young teenager, was possessed and had certain um, uh, insights. And the girl followed Paul and cried out, saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now, there's a few things to say about that. First of all, it's clear that the um, that uh, the atmosphere, the, the principalities and powers are very aware of who the servants of God are. Um, when someone is spirit-filled and living in faith, you can be sure that uh, the demonic hosts are aware of that. It says here that she, she, she was able to say, these men are the servants of the Most High God. How did she know that? There's a spiritual... Uh, battle and a spiritual insight here, and it seems as though she is applauding them she 's praising them. all oh, these men are servants of the most high God, but it could actually be said here who proclaimed to us not the way but a way of salvation, and perhaps the demonic strategy here was for them to be associated with this uh, with the, with these men who and this demonic um, uh, However, they were using that for divination, etc. So it says she did it for many days, verse 18. And eventually, Paul just gets fed up with it. He says, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, addressing the Spirit directly, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Wow. So I don't know what, what, what Silas and Luke are thinking at this point, but this is quite a moment. Um, many days she's been crying out, and all of a sudden Paul turns around and says, okay, enough's enough in the name. And, and, and this, we can imagine, it doesn't say, but we can imagine this girl, um, there is a, an immediate difference. The, the demon is past, and perhaps there's this young teenage girl, a little bit confused, coming to her senses, and um, I like to imagine that she perhaps was also added to the brethren at the end of the book. We, we don't know that for sure, but it uh, doesn't say. So, verse 19, when her masters saw their hope of profit was gone, they seized Saul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. So these men had somehow lost some money from their uh, business, um, and they grab Paul and the, the team, and they drag them to the marketplace. Now, if you were observing this, it could be something you could could evaluate it very naturally. Even today, you might see some Christians get in trouble and they get persecuted. But this has shown us that there is a. This is not natural. This is spiritual. What is happening? This is spiritual opposition that these men are dragging them out. This is this is. Um, uh, Clear in this passage. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. So they accused them of kind of propagating another religion over the state religion. And here, the mission seems to take a bad turn. If you were on the team at this point, you might be tempted to say, boy, I, I didn't, I'm not sure if I signed up for this. I wasn't planning that our missions trip to Greece was going to end up like this. It was not, not looking so good. The multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates rent their garments or tore their clothes, commanded them to be beaten with rods. Now, if you study... Um, if you study uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul lists many of the sufferings that he had to go through. He speaks about being beaten of rods by having having this, uh, the cat of nine tails, uh, being stoned to death. We read about that in on the first missionary journey at Lystra. Being shipwrecked, which we'll, which we'll read about later in the book of Acts. And this event here, beaten with rods, is one that he mentions. Even in Thessalonians, he says but even after that we had suffered before, we were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. So he refers to this experience that we're reading of uh, right here. Now, one little note to make here is that Paul was a Roman citizen. He wasn't a Roman citizen in the fact that he had somehow been able to purchase his Roman citizenship, as many people did, but he was he was free-born. He was born a Roman citizen, in this, in this era, in the Roman Empire, it was a very powerful uh, uh, thing to possess. He could have made a claim here. He could have made that known, and his Roman citizenship become very, very helpful in this situation, because it was against the law for a Roman citizen to be beaten with rods. Um, but we'll see a little bit later why he why Why it seems that he doesn't do that. Anyway, verse 23, when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Now, this this phrase here, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. The jailer's life depended on The prisoner being secure. If the prisoner would escape, there was a Roman law that it it could be life for life. So when the jailer was charged with keeping these prisoners, it wasn't a, a, it wasn't a light, you know, charge. It was, it was serious for his life. That's why it says in verse 24, having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. He's thinking, okay, I'm not taking any risks. These guys are not getting away because I'm going to be the one that's going to suffer for it. So I'm going to put them in the inner prison, the most secure prison, probably beyond a couple of doors, and I'm going to put them in stocks as well. So at this point, if they got a phone call from Antioch, how's it going over there? <laughs> oh, we're in the Philippi jail. It's, it's, I, I don't know. We'll get back to you. Verse 25, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Oh, it's an amazing verse. Um, We we allowed our imagination last class or two classes ago perhaps, um, that if it had been John Mark with, with Paul at this time, perhaps his response might have been different. Perhaps he would have been saying, oh, Paul, great, what a great team leader you are. Here we are on a mission trip and we're in jail. You know, what, what, you know. But, but that's not what we read. We read about prayer and worship. And Silas, who we know was already a proven, uh, a proven man of God, a man of faith from, from the church in Jerusalem on that missionary journey for that time. and Perhaps he, one of them had to start singing, one of them had to start praying. We don't know who it was. But there was a a powerful encouragement and an expression of uh, uh, faith here. And I love that phrase, and the other prisoners heard them. And it makes me think of uh, times in our life where we might be in the midnight hour, so to speak. We might be going through a trial or a trouble. And in that dark place, if we can have a song in the night as a spirit-filled believer... And, and, and an unbeliever finds that difficult to understand, how someone can have joy in a trial. Um, and so remember that when you're going through your midnight hour, the other prisoners can hear your song in the night. And notice it also, it doesn't only say that they were singing hymns to God, but it says they were praying. And it begs the question, what were they praying for? The obvious thing would be that they would be praying that they could escape that God could somehow get them out of prison, that somehow someone would come and they'd be released. But from the rest of the story, we don't come to that conclusion because when, when the doors open and the chains fall off, they don't flee, they don't run, but they lead the jailer to the Lord. So, again, there's some speculation here, but perhaps they were praying for... God's will, God's purpose. Oh Lord, you brought us to Philippi. We, we don't believe this is the end. We believe you have a purpose in us being in this place. Oh Lord, we think of these other prisoners and the jailer and the people. Oh Lord, can you draw people to yourself? Can you save souls? Perhaps that was the prayer. But either way, in verse 26, uh, we, we, we could imagine as an answer to that prayer, suddenly there was a great earthquake at least locally, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. And again, we understand why. He thought, well, I'm going to die for this I'd rather die with as little pain as possible, no torture, no, not getting beaten first. So he was going to take his own life. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And then he called for a light and he ran in and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he asked this incredible question, sir, what must I do to be saved? And this is a crystal clear question. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of being able to answer this question. I have on a few times in my life where someone clearly says, what must I do to be saved? (laughs) Okay, I'd love to answer that question. Um, And that's that was the case here. And how did he know to ask that question is interesting, isn't it? How did this jailer in Philippi Roman jailer in Philippi, know to ask Paul and, and these guys the question, what must I do to be saved? Well, he was the jailer. He certainly knew what the charges were. He perhaps also had heard their singing and prayers and had sensed the earthquake and sensed that there was something supernatural at work, enough for him to recognize that these were men of God and ask this question. And uh, perhaps... We, we could say, uh, perhaps we could wonder how else this jailer and his family would have ever heard the gospel. So all things can be according to, to God's purpose. Uh, even when an ev- evil man may may have an effect on the path of our life, God can use that uh, and bring about his good, work all things together for the good. So, What must I do to be saved is the question. And verse 31 is so clearly and so beautifully the answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So remember that. If you're ever talking to someone in the family and they've got a certain religious background, they say, well, I'm good enough, and you can say, well... Can I show you a Bible verse? This is an amazing story, and you can tell them, the jailer, and he asks this question, what must I do to be saved? And you can just show them, let them read it. It's so clear. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. This phrase at the end, you and your household, has caused some people over over history to consider, oh, does that mean if I get saved, then also my household is saved? And it's a very surface question because when you read the next verses, you, you clearly see that wasn't the case. We, we understand that, that you personally, individually, must make your own decision of faith and that's why in verse 32, he had to share the gospel with each person. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. So by the way, in the book of Acts, you may notice uh, it's a very common pattern that when someone becomes a believer, they don't wait very long to baptize them. Very often, even with Saul of Tarsus himself, he was baptized that night. Very often they get saved and they get baptized. Now, we tend to wait some time because we, 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 we uh, want to be assured that the person understands their salvation, uh, is, that it's crystal clear to them. But it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that you have to wait two months. The question is really, does that person truly understand that they've been saved by grace? And do they understand what water baptism represents? And I remember the story fondly of... Um, Mr. Ting, who was a Chinese man in our church and his wife was a believer and and he'd been coming to the church for many months but he wasn't saved and he was just listening. A very polite, professional gentleman. And uh, we had a baptism one day. We were baptizing about 25 people in an open-air pool in Budapest. Kids and Chinese, a whole different mix. And he came up with his white T-shirt and his towel under his arm and he says, he says, this is the day. I said, What what do you mean? This is the day? He says, "This is the day I'm going to get baptized." And I said, "Well, you understand, Mr. Ting, that that before you get baptized, you need to accept Jesus as your savior and be sure that you're saved by grace through faith in Him. And the baptism is like an outward, you know, your outward expression of faith in understanding that." He says, "I know. Today is the day." And he said, today is the day I want to accept Jesus as my Savior and I want to get baptized. And right there on the side, we bowed our heads and we prayed and he accepted Christ and 10 minutes later he was getting baptized. So it doesn't always have to be that you wait, but we like people to, to, uh, to be assured and for it to be a special occasion in their life. But you'll often see that, that model. So, what verse are we in? 34, 34 yeah. And when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God, again, with all his household. So again, each person personally responding to the gospel. So that was quite a night, wasn't it? Between midnight and the early hours of the morning, quite a lot (laughs) happened that night. There was an earthquake. First of all, they were singing and praying and praising. Then there was an earthquake at midnight. The jailer and all his family hear the gospel Get saved, uh, wash the the wounds of of paul, etc baptize they baptize everyone, then they have dinner, and then they get back before morning it 's quite a night, and when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let those men go, So the jailer is now informed, oh by the way, those guys that were dragged in here you can let them go. so the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying. The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. And Paul said to them, this is where Paul drops the bomb on them. On the on the jailer didn't know, but particularly the magistrates. Paul drops the bomb and he says, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. So he, he, he lets them know, I'm a Roman citizen. And one valued privilege of being a Roman citizen is that you, you are immune from corporal punishment, punishment um, uh, particularly as, as it was carried out here. Even to bind a Roman was a crime. And if you would flog a Roman, you could be flogged or even be beheaded, etc. So you can be sure these magistrates were quaking in their boots when they heard this. They told these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Now, it seems here that this, this was purpose in the heart of Paul. This was something that the Philippi church would always remember because in this act... Paul had really neutralized the Roman authority in, in Philippi and perhaps the church benefited from that or at least was not persecuted as perhaps it would have been um, because of this. So it's very possible that that's, uh, that's why Paul strategically um, uh, did you know, allowed it to take place this way. The church would never forget this. When finally he's in Rome, remember, this is the church that sends to his need to to help and provide for him. Um, Interestingly enough, make these connections. When Paul writes the, the letter to the church in Philippi, he writes from the church in Rome. So it's one of the prison epistles. And they already had seen that he'd experienced being in prison in their own city in Philippi. And when he wrote to them, in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, and he's writing from a Roman prison, they knew the story of him and Silas singing praises at midnight after they'd been beaten. They knew he wasn't just saying some nice little Christian slogan. He meant this and lived this with all his heart. And they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. They begged them to leave. You could leave quietly. You know, just let us know if there's anything we can do for you in the future. Um, verse forty. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Oh, this is a, this raises a wonderful question. We say, wait a minute, the brethren. Who are the brethren? This is the first time they've been to Philippi. This is the first missions mission that anyone's had there. And yet we read the brethren, and we can assume, in part, first of all, you've got Lydia and all her household, maybe one or two of the other women from the prayer meetings, Uh, the demon-possessed girl, perhaps, the jailer and all of his household, perhaps some of the other prisoners who heard them eventually got released and joined the church, we don't know. Perhaps even some of the magistrates themselves. But this is how God does it with a mission in a city with every walk of life and all different circumstances, that God will use them and with the seeds of the gospel give opportunities for people from all different areas, all different situations to hear the gospel and be added to the church. It's quite remarkable. We'll close by introducing chapter 17, where we will see three very different cities that Paul and the team will visit, namely Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, and um, uh, quite an adventure that they have. Again, one of those particularly is very familiar to us because Paul has two letters to the church of uh, the Thessalonians. Okay, so let's, uh, let's pray, pray. So Father, we thank you tonight that we could uh, look at this chapter together. We could consider this uh, amazing journey of, uh, of the Apostle Paul and, and others on this missionary trip, and oh, we pray that you would use this to to stir our hearts as we think about the Great Commission, as we think about our lives and our journeys and our relationships and open doors that you might give us, as we think about people that are portrayed in this chapter, from from young young girls in trouble, from 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 uh, prisoners, from from different households, oh God, we we just know there's such a need for the gospel. We know that perhaps consciously or even unconsciously, uh, subconsciously, people are saying, oh, help us, come over and help us, that people are empty and lonely and wounded and searching uh, right here in our town, the thousands and thousands of people in Peacehaven and along this coast we pray you'd equip us as an as a evangelical church, people in our church with divine appointments, meeting people and praying for people and sharing with people. And we just ask that you would build your church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, any uh, questions can be related to this particular chapter or ones prior or afterwards? Feel free. Yes, Julie. Yeah, mostly, mostly it was by foot. Yeah, mostly it was by foot. Yeah, yeah, like like Cyprus when they went of course when you look at the map, you'll you'll will see that. Oh, wrong button. Well, when you look at the map, you'll see that part of it is by sea, and then part of it is on the land, and then they go back on the sea again. So where they could, they would get a boat down the coastline because of course it's it's easier. It might. You know, uh, but when they're on the land, most of it is is walking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Asia Minor was set aside for John to set up the churches of the Apocalypse, there. The Seven Churches. that he up. Yeah. Uh, though it wasn't it wasn't John that that personally planted those churches. No, no. Um, but he had charge of. A lot of those are under his authority. Yeah. I just wondered does they bypass it? Uh, well, we don't know. I mean, because when, when he comes no. back... I know uh? no, we don't know. We're for sure. But well, I would say, because when he comes back, at the end of this missionary journey, he's in Ephesus. Yes. And at a and later date, he's going to spend three years in Ephesus. Is it two or three years the Apostle Paul is going to be there? So from yeah. Ephesus... There's a Bible college the word of God sounds out from Ephesus. So Paul certainly was known and very effective in this region as were were other other apostles, Yeah. 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 So what that's referring to is in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. This is pushing forward to the end of about 96 A.D., the end of the first century, where John on the Isle of Patmos gets the vision. Um, the, the vision is addressed to the church, seven churches of Asia Minor. There were more than seven. We, we know that some of those are not included in the churches of Revelation, but um, but there were seven that were chosen, addressed in that letter. Yeah. Okay, anyone else? That's an amazing thing but how we able to uh, communicate Yep. Yeah, so, so the questions are for the microphone. There was a question about traveling, and we mentioned how that they would have to walk a lot or take the boat along the coastline where they could, and the other question about communication, and it is, it is a marvel. Um, and, of course, we know that communication in, in ancient times took uh, time, and when we think about these mission trips, in a lot of these places, they were weeks and weeks, if not months. In some cases, like Ephesus later, will be a couple of years. So it's enough time for people to be traveling and taking, taking messages. You know, the letters themselves that Paul wrote to the churches had to be carried by someone to those churches and would take weeks or months to get there. place that lot yeah. in those days, yeah. walking right across the top of Turkey there, which is what it is now. I mean, they had bandits. So yeah. the, so. And yet, there was only the three of them yeah. yeah, Absolutely. And the sea was not much outside of that. That was dangerous as well. No, yeah, we'll read about Paul's shipwreck, Paul's shipwreck. coming up. Okay, anyone else? How big a town is Philippi now? Is it just a set of ruins? I don't know. I've never been to Philippi, I don't I don't know. I wish I had because I was close enough to go, but now I. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, I do have a friend, though, that lives in Turkey, I mentioned, and, and he's done, as, as Jeff has, done done the, uh, the Churches of Asia Minor, and he says, you've got to come over and we'll do a trip. So, I don't know, oh, that'll be fun to do. Okay, all right, God bless you. See you next time.